Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so honored to welcome Ambassador Rachel Hunt. You're an ambassador for the Recovering from Religion Foundation. So welcome, Rachel, to MindShift Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be on MindShift. As I was telling you before we hit record, I'm really honored to be here. You have some real heavy hitters that you bring up on your show. And uh, I'm just thrilled to be in company with such uh, you know, academics and really very intelligent and well-educated people. Well, it's the people I tend to try to go after, I guess it's not so much about the academic qualifications, but the expertise, the background, the the writing, the research and all that. So you more than qualify because obviously you must have a story. I'm really excited to get into what it is because you told me before we hit record, you're a volunteer with RFR, the Recovering from Religion Foundation. And I've had Dr. Daryl Ray on the show before, and I've really yeah, I enjoyed hi. that. Yeah, yeah. I was say, make sure to say hi to Daryl, because that was really I will. good. I will. Um, so we we tend to run in the same kind of circles. The same people are on the same podcast. And, yeah. you know, they pop we pop up at like the conference on religious trauma and things like that. You know, so yeah. it's a funny yeah. kind of small academic and, you know, interested researching community that writes and talks about all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So the atheist what, community is actually, and the activist community is actually kind of small and close knit. It's mm-hmm. growing, but there is a lot of, you encounter a lot of the same people for sure. That's yeah. true. You see the same faces, same names, mm-hmm. kind of on the opposite side of what the sort of Christian right is doing. You know, we're trying to get the word out about what they're doing and all the other things that are going on. So, well, what's your story? I'm interested to hear your backstory. You must have come out of some kind of religious background that led you to work for RFR as a volunteer. That is true. Not all RFR volunteers do have a religious background, but I do. I was actually raised in Texas as a Christian scientist, which is Mm. unusual. Most people, if they've ever heard of Christian science, they've heard of really dramatic stories in the news where, you know, some kid had an illness and their parents refused to take them to the hospital and, and, you know, there was some tragic ending. That was not my experience. Uh, My experience was this was just a very quiet sort of intellectual church where we would go and we would sing, you know, hymns with traditional melodies with you know, and we, we had the Bible and the companion book was called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, which is written by Mary Baker Eddy. This is one of the um, kind of new Protestant religions that cropped up at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was all about, this was also kind of the beginning of the um, kind of law of attraction, kind of science of getting rich stuff, where everyone was, was trying to look at the Bible as a guide to how to sort of manifest what you wanted in your life. So um, Mary Baker Eddy came up with this idea, this sort of almost a matrix idea where we live in an illusion and everything that is sinful and wrong and painful or illness, this is all an illusion. And if you can just see it perfectly the way God sees it, everything will go away. So this is what I was taught growing up. And, you know, it didn't take me too long to notice there were some flaws in this logic. 
Geology didn't work. <laughs> it just didn't really work. But the weird part is it kind of works a little bit, right? I mean, mm. there's placebo effect for everything and your attitude does matter some. And so sometimes you would feel like it was working. And then the more I learned about science and psychology, I was like, you know what? This just doesn't quite add up. But for a long time, I still felt like, I mean, I was immersed in this culture of you know, you have to believe in God to be a good person or everybody believes in God. You, if you don't get it, you must be missing something. It must be me that doesn't quite get it. Right. Um, and raising children, I thought, oh, I should take them to church because I don't know how else to instill moral values. And so my husband and I, he was raised Catholic and, you know, that didn't go well for his family, but we tried going to all these different churches. We tried the Scientology church for a while. We kind of tried the new age movement. We tried going to these new non-denominational things, which were just really bad. And finally I discovered the atheist community and mm. I was like, Oh, well, this is where I belong. Clearly, you know, once I realized that there are people merely living, you know, perfectly happy lives, not believing in any sort of supernatural entities, I realized that that was where I belonged and that there was no reason for me to try to force myself to get what all these other people were saying mm -hmm. was happening, you know. Don't they say that atheists, they have no moral compass, though, isn't that <laughs> one of the, it's one of the, often the charges that's leveled against atheists that without the Bible, without some sort of sacred text to govern our lives by, you know, we're, we're going to be out there murdering people and, you know. Oh, no clearly that's compass. the case. Yeah, yeah, I was just—I have two murders before, you know, this morning, and I got a couple more. Yeah, my, you know, we'll just my, book in this podcast. Yeah, then <laughs> go kill some yeah, people. Well, I mean, it's crazy, isn't yeah. it? Well, what's funny is, you know, before I kind of got into, you know, the literature and listening to what everybody else was saying, I kind of came up with the argument myself. I thought, well, look how do you know what's good and bad? Like, you know, when you read the Bible, I'm like, well, if, well, how about this? How about if God told you to go murder people, would you do it? No, no, no. God would never say that. Okay. Well, some people say God does tell them that. Mm. And if you thought that God was telling you that, how do you know that he didn't? Well, because I know what right is. Really? Well, where did you get that idea from? From the Bible? Really? Circular <laughs> logic. You go kill people, which it does. And plenty <laughs> of know? cases. Yeah. Where God commanded genocide in the old Testament. Absolutely. You know, so, so, I mean, the whole point is you have an idea of what good and bad is, but that is not actually based on your religion. It's it may have been something that you learned from your parents or from church, but it's definitely, you know, if you live a normal life in, you know, a Western country, the things that you do and the things that you value are not the things that are in the Bible. That's mm -hmm. not where you got it from. Most um, of cultural and yeah, familial, you know, kind of thing you're raised in, as you say, isn't it? The, co yeah. the context. Well, going back to your time in Christian science, would you say that it was because it doesn't sound like you framed it as a particularly traumatic experience? Not you don't you don't have like all this religious trauma syndrome from your time as a Christian scientist, it sounds like. No, I really don't. Um, now, I did go through a little angry phase where I realized, <laughs> OK, here's a story. You'll enjoy this. I was probably 10 or 11. And I was having a discussion with a neighbor, a friend of mine, a little boy, and we were talking about religion. And of course, he came from a different religion than me, because hardly anybody went, was Christian scientist at the time. He was, I don't know, some sort of Protestant. And he said some doctrinal thing that was different from what I had been taught. We got into this big argument. And I was really angry. I was like, he was just wrong. Why would, why would he say something like that? Why would he just be wrong like that? So I went to my mother and told her what happened. And she said, well, not everyone believes what we believe. And I was like, what? Are you <laughs> what? kidding? Shocking. I was mortified. 
that I had been so confident and so sure that what I was taught was absolutely right because that's what, you know, everyone presented it as the mm. truth. And the fact that she was now saying it was just an opinion was devastating to me. You know, I was like, why would you, why would you do that to me? Why mm. would you tell me that this is the absolute truth when it's just an opinion? That's fascinating. Yeah. These kind yeah. of disconfirming experiences. I remember when I was about 14, I went to a Christian high school in the, in the Seattle area where I grew up. I had a similar kind of big falling out with a good friend of mine who came over for to spend the weekend. And he, on the way back from church on the Sunday, we got into a huge argument over speaking in tongues, which was a similar kind of thing. You know, we didn't yeah. believe in the gift of tongues and his church did. And, you know, we had a massive falling out over that, you know, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. was probably the first exposure I ever had to a different tradition and mm -hmm. just within evangelical Christianity, but of course there's all kinds of streams and iterations in there. So yeah, they can be pretty jarring, <laughs> jarring experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because there was a time when I was probably my teens, when I first became aware of the non-denominational movement. And at the time I thought, well, that's a great idea. People are mm -hmm. you know, being less divisive. They're being more inclusive. We all believe the same, you know, fundamental precepts of Christianity. That sounds great. But then I actually attended a church like that and realized that is not what's happening. Mm -hmm. What <laughs> was happening? It, what it means is that now a preacher gets to make up whatever they want and tell their congregation that they alone know the truth and they mm. can be as fundamentalist or as crazy as you want. It's just a way to, it's a way to have a personality be in control of the congregation instead of being an institution. Mm -hmm. It's just a place for narcissists to, you know. It can be, yeah, it can be very cult-like, I think, in many ways. And one of the things about it is I remember even as an evangelical thinking about the same kind of thing where if you're part of a big denomination, a nationwide or worldwide, at least there's some accountability, as you say. But when you're out on your own, you're a solo operator. There's there's no accountability potentially from any governing body or anything to check your doctrine or theology or your abuses of power. So, yeah, oh, yeah. that can lead to all kinds of problems. Absolutely. And I was never deeply immersed in a congregation like that, but I hear from our recovering from religion clients quite often that they just weren't allowed to question the pastor, you know, mm. who, or the preacher, whoever he was, whoever the leader of the church was, was always right. Even if he contradicted himself, you just weren't allowed to question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a haven for people, for abusive types, it's you so know, true. not that they're all, all that way. A lot of very, you know, sincere people are trying to do the, what they think is right, but there's no accountability for someone who is a grifter or who is you know, abusive. There's just mm, that. It's true. Know. And there's so many shocking and sad stories that come out all the time. Isn't there about poor, unfortunate people who have been abused and you know, emotionally, sexually, uh, mm -hmm. financially, the list goes on and on and on in oh, yeah. churches, even, the, even in the big ones, I'm not letting the ones that are part of a denomination off the hook either. Cause right, there's so right. many stories. I mean, look at the Catholic church for crying out oh. loud. I mean, that's a whole nother story oh, yeah. in and of itself. The pedophile priests that have been moved from parish to parish and that's gone on for god knows how long you know so it's not, that's no guarantee that you'll be safe is it well absolutely not and the the problem is in both cases it's the reputation that is more important than the uh congregation mm -hmm. and and it can be whether it's an individual pastor that that has a reputation that he wants everyone to worship him or if you've got an institution that is entrenched and ancient and you know feels like it has to protect its own reputation in either case the needs of the congregation are completely 
secondary or mm-hmm. just ignored altogether. Yeah, we can't let the church be tarnished, so we're going to protect it at all costs. Like I said, throwing the congregation, yeah. the victims under the bus. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's coming out now. Well, now, how did you get involved with RFR? Because you're so far your story, I don't want to say it's unremarkable, but it's you go <laughs> out of Christian science, you you church shopped a little bit and all that, became an atheist. That could have been the end of the line. You could have said, oh, I'm an atheist now, and that's me done. How do you find out about RFR and then get involved with it? Well, I think like most uh, people, I found out about RFR, RFR, sorry, RFR, probably through YouTube, you know, just watching Mm -hmm. atheist content. A lot of atheists are very supportive of RFR and they'll mention it. What really happened was I tried to, I wanted to make a difference, uh, you know, make the world a little bit better place. And, you know, the trash fire that the last couple of years have been was not easy on anyone. And um, I got into local politics and who'd have thunk it? There's politics Mm. in politics. People are petty and personal and it was just a mess. It was no fun to be around those people, even though they ostensibly believed the same, same things I did. I didn't like being around them and I didn't really want to do that kind of work. So I just was cast about trying to find something else. And RFR was what I decided to try. And the experience has been so amazing. I cannot stress what a change I felt in myself being a part of this community. They're just incredible. They have great training, great support great vetting, great community, great people. And, you know, most places that you go, like my experience in politics or even just any community, there's a lot of, you know, drama. There's always some level of toxicity that happens. And um, most of the time, I was thinking about this before we got on a call, most of the time people are so conflict averse that the biggest asshole gets their way. Mm-hmm. And everybody else just kind of throws up their hands and says, well, what are you going to do? That's just the way that guy is or that woman or whatever. And RFR is not like that. If people are assholes, they get kicked out. Yeah, they really just don't last long because we recognize how fragile our clients are. And we just don't let them be around someone who's going to take advantage of their kind nature. We're not going to let people bully each other. We just don't allow it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes a huge difference. It's just such a wonderful place to spend my time. Well, I think it's it's a good port of call, isn't it? Because I'm just looking at the RFR uh, blog right now, our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. And it's, you know, all about, it says questioning your beliefs and all this. What do you do as a non-believer? Maybe you're now navigating and their kind of tagline is um, learning how to live after questions, doubts, and changing beliefs is a journey we at Recovering From Religion are intimately familiar with this path, and we are here to help you cross that bridge. Our passion is connecting others with support, resources, community, and most of all, hope. We have two forms of support available below, peer support and professional support. And there's phone numbers you can call depending on which country you're in. Obviously, America, Canada, Great Britain, where I'm at, looks like Australia and South Africa. So you can just call somebody, and then there's loads of groups. You can become part of a support group or talk to someone like yourself. So how did that work to become, uh, I guess, is it a volunteer counselor? You're, you're saying you're not a mental health professional in that regard, are you? Well, I work in several capacities for RFR, but um, all of it is as a lay person. Obviously, I'm not trained as a counselor or as a therapist, but they do have great um, training 
I clicked the volunteer button and they kind of pushed me in, not pushed me, but they, they sorted me into the training for helpline agent. So the first training that I received and, and kind of my main title is helpline agent, which means that if you call one of those phone numbers, or if you use the chat in function, the web chat function, or the web call function, you can actually call or chat in from anywhere in the world 24 seven, somebody, hopefully, a volunteer will be there to, to speak with you. And I'm one of the people that picks up the phone or answers the chat when people are asking for support. And what we do in that capacity is really just listen. We do reflective listening, where if you're, we'll just say, what's going on? Tell me what's happening. Um, how do you feel about it? You know, what do you think your options are? You know, here's some other possibilities. What do you think is the best plan for you? Here's some resources. We have a vast curated library of resources on almost every conceivable related topic to religion, where if you say, oh, well, I'm just having some doubts, but I can't tell anybody because everybody's religious. We have some resources on how to decide whether to come out, um, how to maintain relationships with people who are believers. If you are in a situation where I'm still a believer, but I can't introduce my family to my girlfriend because she doesn't come from the same religious background. What do I do? We have resources mm -hmm. on that. You know, maybe you're LGBTQ and your religion is not accepting of that and you're not quite sure how to navigate that issue. Maybe you've been an atheist for a long time, but every once in a while you get that trigger and you wake up with a nightmare about hell and you're just not quite sure why this won't go away. You know, that kind of stuff all happens. And uh, we don't tell you what to do but we will refer you to resources and help you sort through your own thoughts and sort of, you know, dump your emotions and we'll just take all that and we'll help you, help you feel better. Mm -hmm. We can also well, introduce I, you to community. Yeah. I was going to say too, looking at the blog, you can click on the blog link and it takes you to a medium page and there's loads of articles. I was, I'm thinking, Oh, I, I need to get <laughs> into some of these articles. There's some really good ones that I think would resonate with what I'm trying to do, you know, but mm -hmm. so that's that's another thing, isn't it? Just reading some of the articles. Maybe that's a first port of call if you haven't talked to anybody yet. Are you on call though? That's a question. When you're when you're a counselor, do you have certain set hours? You go, okay, from this time to this time on these certain days, I'm gonna pick up the phone. And what if someone calls you at three o'clock in the morning? Are you gonna are you gonna answer the phone? That's a very personal thing. They do not ask us to um commit to a schedule. Um, they ask us to commit to like a certain number of hours a week. It's like four hours a month or something like that. And, and nobody checks on you. But basically for me, I just kind of look at my own schedule and if a call comes up and I'm doing something that can be interrupted, I'll pick it up. Or if a chat comes in, I'll just choose to pick it up. And sometimes I'll look at it and I'll go, you know, just not... I'm not feeling like I can do this right now. I've had a mm -hmm. rough day and, and we have a little, you know, workspace function where I can uh, put out a call and say, Hey, there's a, there's a client coming in. Can somebody pick this up? And somebody will go, Oh yeah, I'll get it. And um, if it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm asleep and our, you know, one of our counselors or one of our agents in Australia will pick it up. It's the middle of the day for them. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So there's so, coverage. Yeah. Worldwide, literally. There really is. And we have a lot of people that come through the training and some of them are extremely active and have a lot of time and donate quite a bit of time. Some people, you know, less so, but, and sometimes we don't have anybody there. It's occasional, occasionally will happen where a client will try to contact us and no one's available, but we usually will just ask them to try again later because most of the time we've, we've got real good coverage and we don't even mm -hmm. have to write a schedule. People are just really good because they want to help. 
you know. Yeah, they just want to be there. Well, you yeah. mentioned before we hit record, you said, well, I don't necessarily have a real traumatic religious background, but mm -hmm. there are counselors who do. And mm -hmm. you said a lot of clients who call in do. You mentioned something before we hit record. You said, you know, some of the stories that I hear as a counselor or a, a volunteer must be just absolutely shocking and heartbreaking. I mean, are you free to share? I, I obviously can't share personal experiences right. with, with people's, you know, what's happened to them, but is there like a profile? What are some of the stories that stick out in your mind? Some of the most heartbreaking things are when we hear from people, men and women, but particularly the women in Muslim countries. Sometimes we mm. get people who are young and they're, you know, they're unmarried, but they know that they're expected to marry. They know what the path is that's laid out for them and they don't want to do it. And they just can't. They know that if, if anybody finds out that they don't want to do it, that their lives are physically in danger, their family members will, you know, possibly be physically harmful to them. And this doesn't even happen just in Muslim majority countries. There are people in Muslim um, communities in the Western world, in the United States and Canada, where they are isolated enough that, you know, we hear reports of young Muslim people who didn't toe the line just disappearing. Nobody knows what happened to them. And this is in, you know, places where it shouldn't happen. It's just, it's terrifying and, and heartrending. Now, fortunately, there are um, some good resources. We, we don't physically, you know, offer resources to people. We just offer digital resources. This is someplace you can call, someplace you can contact, something you can read. Um, but there are places that will physically help people out of situations like that. And we can um, direct them to those organizations. But th that's just really heartrending. Um, hear lots of lots of things from teenagers who are sort of physically isolated they live with a parent they don't have a car um, they're not really allowed to leave the house very often sometimes they're not really supposed to be on the internet without supervision they're you know they have very limited ability to contact us and they just don't see any way out they just don't see how they can ever support themselves um, without the parent sort of, you know, swooping in and trying to prevent them from going, from leaving, you know, we hear from people who are, um, you know, adults and have been atheists for a long time, but they have some sort of maybe a mental illness that they have not been able to get a, a good hold of. And sometimes they call us repeatedly, just, you know, hoping that there's something that we can do for them. And but those are, those are sort of fringe cases. Those happen, but the big bulk of what we get are people who are like, you know, look, I, I, my family's religious and I'm not anymore. And that's kind of an issue. I'm not sure how to talk to them without yelling. And, but mostly I just have this lingering fear that I'm wrong. What happens if, you know, what happens if I'm wrong? There's just, my brain says it doesn't make any sense. There's no God, there's no hell. There's nothing to be worried about. And, you know, my body wakes up sweating at two o'clock in the morning and I don't know what to do about that. So that's a big part of what we do. Or people that just feel isolated. They go, everybody around me is Christian. Everybody around me is, is religious and there's nobody to talk to. And, you know, statistically, we know that's not actually the case, but it certainly does feel like it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we can do is help direct people to community. You know, we can direct them to our support groups. RFR has sponsored support groups um, for people who are struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. We have our Slack online community, which is by invitation only heavily moderated and very, very safe, private, confidential. It's a great place to go if you literally have no one else that you can talk to, especially if you feel unsafe. 
um, coming out to your family and community about your doubts. be right back in just a couple of minutes with the second half of my conversation with Rachel Hunt from the RFR, the Recovering from Religion organization. We're going to talk about how you can join a group if you're looking for any sort of support. She's going to give you advice and information on how to get online or join a group in person no matter where you are in the world. We're also going to talk about the Secular Therapy Project and finally conclude by talking about how you can support the RFR financially. They definitely need your help. So that's going to be the last little bit of our conversation between me and Rachel. Just wanted to tell you what is coming up here in the next little bit here on Mindship Podcast. Had a really good conversation the other day with Stephen Mather and his daughter, Celine. They are the co-hosts of the What Should I Think About podcast. And I've been on that show before. And when I was on that podcast with them, I found out that they, well, I should say Stephen, he is an ex-Jehovah's Witness, but his daughter was not raised in the church or the cult, I would say. And so I said, we need to do a podcast on your story. So I got a hold of Stephen and Celine. We had an absolutely fascinating conversation about Stephen's experience, and he and I shared stories about what was it like and the differences between growing up in me, in my case, the evangelical fundamentalist Christianity, and him the Jehovah's Witnesses. A lot of overlaps, a lot of similarities, really interesting conversation. So that's going to be coming out. The other thing was I was going to talk to Frank Schaefer the other day. We had a couple of hiccups along the way and that has now been rescheduled. So I'm looking to book in again with Frank. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. And then a couple other things in the pipeline. I've been chatting with Casey from the Cult Vault podcast. I'm going to be on that show and then I'm going to be working to have Casey on this show. So we're going to do a little bit of a collaboration there. And then finally, I came across a really interesting article the other day by a professor, Melanie McAllister. Now, she's the professor of American Studies and International Affairs at George Washington University. And she's written a book called The Kingdom of God Has No Border, A Global History of American Evangelicals. And so I'm really excited to talk to Dr. McAllister because I want to hear her perspective especially in terms of the global perspective on not just American evangelicalism, but indeed worldwide. And she is an expert in that field. So that's going to be a really good chat. And that's booked as well coming up in the next little bit. And then finally, what are some of the upcoming events we've got on the 24th of April? Our MindShift Zoom call with Dr. David DeAndre. And like me, he's an expat. He lives in Canada. We both have escaped America and we've left our lives behind. We're living in different countries. He's got a book coming out on the toxic effects of Calvinism. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him on our MindShift Zoom call uh, in, a, in a week or so as I'm doing this recording now. So it's still not too late actually to be a part of that call. To get into those closed calls, you have to be a patron of the show. You can support the show on Patreon, and that gets you early access to shows before they drop in the general public. And it gets you into those closed calls. We also have patrons-only calls, generally about the first Sunday of the month. And then we have our uh, MindShift Zoom calls about the third Sunday of the month. And in fact, speaking of the next one we have in the month of May, we've got Stephen and Celine coming back as our guests. So I've already booked that in uh, in a month or so. So I'm really, again, looking forward to having Stephen and Celine back and having the people in our group meet them. All right, let's get back into this conversation with Rachel Hunt as we look at how you can support, how you can be a part of the RFR, Recovering From Religion. 
looking at the website. So yeah, you talk about face-to-face support groups, but obviously that must have changed during the pandemic, but it says groups are still meeting online. So if you want to join a group, that's a big thing, isn't it? Finding a new you know, community, really, if you've left a church or left a religion or something like that. So that's another resource that RFR offers, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that is huge. I'm so glad you brought that up because the support groups were actually the very beginning of recovering from religion were support groups that Dr. Darrell Way created 13 years ago in like a coffee shop or something. Um, and they were originally in-person group meetings where you would actually show up at a library or a community center and sit around with the, you know, 10 or 12 people and, and talk about your religious trauma with a trained volunteer, not a therapist. During the pandemic, everything went online. And although there are a lot of people that, of course, still really miss that and would prefer to be able to meet in person, in a way, it's been a blessing because people can join these groups from anywhere in the world. You may not be near where a support group actually is meeting, but if it suits your schedule, you can join it anyway. You don't have to be from that area. And we've created a few virtual support groups. We have one that's specifically timed to be accessible for people in European and Asian time zones um, so that they can come. We have a couple that are you know, in Australia, so they're for people in those time zones. Uh, we also have one that's just a, a few months old that is specifically for women only, women identifying people and AFAB, uh, including um, trans women. And that has been very, very popular. But really, if you're interested in joining a support group, you do not have to find one near you. As long as they're online, you can go to anything that suits your schedule and you'll be welcome. And then there's one more thing we haven't talked about. And then it's the other aspect. There's professional therapy. So there's the secular therapy project. So if somebody really needs to talk to an actual trained therapist, that's another avenue they can pursue. What can you tell us about the secular therapy project? Therapists from the Secular Therapy Project are vetted to ensure that they are properly licensed and trained and that they only use evidence-based therapy methods and treatment methods. Mm -hmm. Um, They are not going to tell you, oh, you just need God in your life, or here's a Bible verse for you to (laughs) contemplate, which happens shockingly often in the therapy world. Even government-sponsored programs, social services often have religious counselors or people that may be, you know, trained in a secular way, but they still feel it's appropriate for them to bring their religion into therapy. And um, that is not allowed for anyone that has the secular therapy project attached to their name, which means that a lot of therapists actually get rejected. The good news is that that this is a need that we knew needed to be filled. Most of these therapists also have uh, information and some insight into how to treat religious trauma syndrome, which I know you're aware of and you've spoken about mm-hmm. on your before. It's a, it's a thing. It's a form of PTSD oh, yeah. caused yeah. by adverse religious experiences. The, the bad news is that um, all we can do is connect you with this database that's all have their own payment schedules, whatever insurance they take. It's It does cost money and you know, you have to negotiate that according to whatever your insurance or your payment ability is. It would be lovely if we could offer this for free. There are probably some of them that do have some sliding scale or something, but but we're not able to offer that service for free. But we do the database and the and the connecting you to them is is free. And that's mm-hmm. something that is. But sometimes you need, yeah, you need extra support. And I, I know we've talked, like you said, I've talked to many therapists who are sort of specialists in religious trauma syndrome. 
Dr. Marlene Winnell comes to mind and some other people, you know, who kind of pioneered that whole field, I think, but a lot of therapists don't know what RTS is. So this is a new thing. As you say, it is absolutely a thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so I'm glad that recovering from religion is kind of on the cutting edge of, you know, connecting people with trained therapists who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is not really a crazy concept. I mean, everybody knows what PTSD is or complex PTSD. Everybody knows that adverse experiences can cause, you know, trauma. What people seem to sometimes consider a strange idea is that this can happen in a religious context. It just seems to be some people who like to believe that religion can't possibly cause harm uh, or religious ideas can't possibly cause harm. But, you know, what we hope is that even if you believe that your religion couldn't possibly be harmful, surely you understand that there are some religions out there that are causing harm to people. And that is what religious trauma syndrome is. You know, the label is intended to help us recognize that when it comes up. You're providing those resources. Well, now, as we said, the the whole context for how this call came about was someone from RFR contacted me probably two months ago saying, would you be interested in helping to get the word out? Because there's a fundraiser. You guys need money to run this operation. What can you tell us about this fundraiser that RFR is trying to put together? Well, I'm so glad you asked. It's such a great <laughs> a softball question for it. <laughs> Yay. Uh, yes. So um, every year RFR does a fundraiser and this is just to support the needs that we have as an organization. We are 100% volunteer run. Nobody gets paid a salary at this. And there are, you know, probably over a couple hundred people that are volunteering for RFR, but some things cost money, you know, software, merchandise, advertising. Um, We do, every year we do a fall excursion, which is just incredible experience. It's sort of like a non-religious retreat, (laughs) um, which is great. And the the fundraiser helps with that. Also, there's this marvelous new project where RFR is going to be buying some billboard ad space in some heavily religious areas. And Mm. uh, it hasn't been decided exactly where yet, but definitely going to be in the same places that have the little fire and brimstone billboards, we're going to try to be counteracting that. Uh, and mm-hmm. those are pricey. So we need donations to help cover that as well. So we just had, unfortunately, you and I weren't able to get our schedule together before the event, but that we just had uh, a huge uh, four-hour fundraiser with your friendly neighborhood atheist YouTube channel, which is Ethan Michael. He's just incredibly generous and very, very just amazing that he he got together like 30 YouTube influencers together and they did an incredible event for us. But our fundraising season doesn't end until the end of the month, so you can still donate. But you don't have to actually you can donate anytime. <laughs> We're happy to mm-hmm. accept your donations Take anytime. Your money. Yeah. You can go to recoveringfromreligion.org and click the donate button. Um, I think you can get there by recoveringfromreligion.org just slash donate. But if you go to the main webpage, there will be a donate button there. And we would be very happy to receive your donation of any amount, really small amounts, five, ten dollars are great. Every little bit really helps. Every little bit helps. That's for sure. Well, I love the fact that RFR has so many avenues for the, you know, as we said, the person who's struggling with his or her faith or whatever their doubts and questions or problems are all the way to becoming a volunteer. They provide the training. They've got online groups. I mean, there's so many resources there. And I love the fact that, you know, we can help support that and get the word out about it. Well, I appreciate it so much. Um, It's been great talking to you and um, I've, 
we just can't tell you how much the support of influencers like you um, and other podcasters and, and YouTubers really help us. As you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of religious people really getting a lot of airtime and mm -hmm. there's hardly anybody doing what we do, which is trying to help people recover from whatever they went through in their religion and help them kind of navigate their way out of it. So, um, you know, people really, really do need us and we really appreciate the support of the community. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. I'm glad that we finally got our schedules together. We had a little bit of a back and forth, but we, we finally made it work. So I, I really, really hope that people will check out RFR's website in whatever capacity, whether they need, just need help, support, or they want to donate or become a volunteer. There's a lot of things that people can do to get involved with RFR. So thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to me. Thank you so much. And I just want to emphasize, we say RFR for short, but if you're looking for the website, it's recoveringfromreligion.org. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, we need to clarify that. We don't want people going to the wrong place. So thank you so much for clarifying that too. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you.